of Philippians chapter 3 this afternoon. While you're looking that up, uh, I know the last message of the conference is always perhaps the most uh, difficult. The scripture says we're, we count them happy that endure. And you're all looking very happy about now. So I hope, uh, I hope you can make it through this last uh, session. A few years ago, I was over in Nigeria and uh, at the conference there, it was all outside. Everything was outside and they, the people sort of sat in kind of a uh, sort of a semicircle group, uh, women on one side and men on the other side, and it kind of went a little bit behind the speakers, and we stood in the center. Of course, we spoke in English, and they had uh, an interpreter there to interpret it into the uh, local language, and they had what they called the stick men, and I wasn't sure what these were, and they explained it to me that there were a number of men who stood around. They had these long sticks, and they were watching the crowd. And if you nodded off to sleep, that stick would be, they'd reach that stick and they would just tap your leg or tap your arm just to kind of wake you up, you know. The poor fellows, when I got up to preach, they were just run off their feet, you know. Uh, and um, so, you know, I wouldn't hurt maybe if you wanted to go into the broom closet and get a broom or something and just kind of walk up and down the aisle here. And if you... If you notice anybody uh, going off to sleep, just give them a tap on the, on the arm. Philippians chapter 3, we'll begin uh, reading at verse 1. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead." Not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend, that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. 
I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore as many as be perfect be thus minded, and if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an example. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. I suppose we could summarize uh, Philippians chapter 3 this way, beware of the false way, and believe in the true way. For there is a sharp contrast in this chapter between that which is false and that which is true. Now, he begins in verse 1 uh, by saying, Rejoice in the Lord. And I think the, the thought flow of chapter 3 really finishes with verse 1 of chapter 4, which says, Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. And so the section begins with, with uh, the command or the exhortation to rejoice in the Lord and concludes uh, with the exhortation to stand fast in the Lord. So everything is in the Lord and under the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord and stand fast in the Lord. Now it is a good thing to know that we can always rejoice in the Lord. That is, when we bring the Lord into our life circumstances, we can always rejoice. Even though the circumstances themselves may be unpleasant, we recognize that He ultimately is in control. That the Lord has the circumstances of your life in control. Even though they may not feel like they're in control, the Lord is always in control. We can rejoice in the Lord. And then he says to stand fast in the Lord. Because Paul is, is very concerned that the believers are going to face uh, opposition. Uh, they are going to face persecution. Uh, they are going to face the effect of false doctrine, counterfeit teaching uh, that is going to attack them. And so he urges them, he challenges them, he exhorts them, stand fast in the Lord. That the Christian warfare, or the, the Christian life, has this aspect, this dimension of warfare about it. It is not just a convenient life. It is not happiness all the time. There are times of conflict. We face opposition as Christian believers. Stand, uh, rejoice in the Lord and stand fast in the Lord. 
we see everything centers around the Lord. Paul always gravitated back to the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't read any of his epistles uh, without learning something about our Lord Jesus Christ. He was vitally, uh, actively, dynamically, it, it consciously, intelligently connected with the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a real and living person in Paul's Christian experience. And so it should be with us that the Lord is not to be a, a remote, sort of abstract uh, cold doctrine, but he is a living person with whom we should know what it is to have daily fellowship and contact. Rejoice in the Lord and stand fast in the Lord. Now he begins by uh, raising a warning. Beware of the false way. He says in the second part of verse 1, to write the same things to you, to me indeed is not grievous, but for you it is safe. In other words, Paul had no hesitation uh, to repeat his message. Uh, Peter uses the same uh, idea as he says in his epistle. He wanted to stir up their pure minds by way of remembrance. He says, even though you already know these things, I am going to remind you of them. And the repetition of truth, the repetition of doctrine is vital. It stands as a safeguard. We should never reach the point where we think, well, we've heard all this before. We're looking for something new. Now, this doesn't mean that we just sort of keep rehashing the same old, if you, if you preach, for instance, we just sort of keep rehashing the same old messages again and again. We should always have a fresh approach to the scripture. But nonetheless, we, we never move past the scripture. And we can never repeat the truth too often. This settles it, secures it, solidifies it in the minds of the believers. And Paul saw it as a safeguard. And so many of these things that he's communicating in this epistle, while we might be reading it for the first time here in the Philippian epistle, he had evidently communicated this to them before. To write the same thing to you, to me indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Now he begins in verse 2 with the heart of his warning. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. Now we might ask ourselves, what on earth does Paul have against dogs? You might be thinking of your dog. Fluffy or Skippy or maybe you've named it after your third husband, I don't know, uh, something like that. Uh, uh, you, you, you think of that little dog probably as a member of your family. In fact, you probably love that dog more than you love some members of your family. And uh, you might wonder, what is Paul's, uh, why is Paul against dogs here? Well, he's not using dogs in the sense as we think about it as our domesticated pets, uh, but really it is a pejorative term. Uh, Kenneth Weiss describes it this way, he says, what he means by dogs here are mangy, flea-bitten, vicious, scar starved scavengers. Uh, these were almost like wild dogs, almost like we might think of as a, a coyote going about uh, looking, uh, looking for prey. Beware of dogs. He is describing false teachers. In fact, the scriptures are full of warnings to the people of God against false teachers. 
keeping your place here in Philippians, let's turn for a moment to the, uh, the Gospels, Matthew chapter 7, where the Lord warned the people of his day. Matthew 7 uh, and 15. Matthew 7 and 15. Beware of false prophets, which shall come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. Now that's in connection with identifying the false teacher. Uh, beware of false prophets. Sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The Lord Jesus Christ warned about false prophets. But the Holy Spirit also warned, if we go to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4, First Timothy 4 and 1. Now, the Spirit speaketh expressly. The Spirit speaketh expressly. It, it would seem that, that Paul had a special sense of the Spirit of God impressing this on him. All that he wrote was a movement of the Spirit of God. Uh, everything that he wrote was inspired by, uh, by the Holy Spirit. But here there's a special sense of emphasis, almost a special sense of force. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. And then he goes on, he describes some of the things that would characterize their teaching, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain with meats, which God hath recreated uh, to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. Now we know of uh, uh, of. Uh, Teachers that advance this idea that the abstinence of marriage and forbidding to eat certain things. Uh, the Spirit of God warns against false teaching. And then uh, uh, Peter warns against uh, false teaching. The Apostle Peter, if we go to 2 Peter chapter 2. 2 Peter chapter 2. And verse 1. Second Peter 2 and 1, but there were false prophets also among the people. That is, uh, I take that referring to uh, the nation of Israel. Uh, there were false prophets also among the people. Even as there shall be false teachers among you. I take that to be referring uh, to the church. Even as there shall be false teachers among you who shall privily bring in damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them, and bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways, by reason of whom the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. 
And then lastly, the, uh, Jude writes about this, uh, the little book of Jude, second last book of the Bible. And notice what he says in verse 3, Jude 3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, now he's saying here that he was intending to write about the, their salvation. When I gave diligence to write unto you, it was needful for me. Like his train of thought was interrupted and he changed his mind about what he was going to write. It was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once or once for all delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men which crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning the grace of our, uh, grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And then he goes on and he cites an example from angels which also left uh, the truth and the example of Sodom and Gomorrah. The warning against false teachers. The Lord warned against false prophets. The Spirit of God spoke expressly about those that would depart from the faith. Uh, the Apostle Peter warned that as there were false prophets among the people, so shall there be false teachers among you. And Jude here warns also that the church is called to earnestly contend for the faith because genuine uh, companies of God's people are going to be the objects of those who, who want to contaminate the faith by bringing uh, that which is false. The true will attract that which is false. Jude cites the example of, of Israel at the time of their uh, release from Egypt. Uh, and he says that, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. In other words, uh, all of those that came out of Egypt, while they were physically redeemed from Egypt, they were not spiritually redeemed. Hebrews tells us this that they believed not. In fact, the psalmist reflecting back on that era of history quotes the word of God saying, I swore in my wrath, God said, they shall not enter into my rest. Why? Because they believed not the gospel. Outwardly, they professed to be among the people of God. Outwardly, they professed to be believers, but inwardly, they were unbelievers. And Jude tells us that we are challenged to earnestly contend for the faith because genuine companies of believers are going to attract those who teach false doctrine. Now, we live in an age, of course, when we see all kinds of things about us that are done in the name of Christianity and are done in the name of the gospel and they use Bible terms and Bible language and the trappings of Christianity, but in fact are not uh, true. They are false teachers. 
We can be very grateful in the heritage that we have in the assemblies that have always been careful to make sure that those that are brought into our company and fellowship in our assemblies and those uh, that are invited to take our public platforms and to teach in any way, that there is a, a, a fairly good system uh, of vetting, so to speak, so that we are protected uh, from false teachers. A and in fact, if you stand back and look at the church and you look at doctrinal error that has contaminated the church at large, in almost no case can you ever cite the origin, the development, the advance, the growth of, growth of that coming from a single uh, congregation, and certainly among the assemblies, it's almost unknown. Now, I know there are times when brethren have disagreed over certain things, and there are certain ideas here and there, but they have never really taken uh, growing legs, so to speak. They have never really spread far and wide. And we can be very grateful for the protection of the local church that protects us from being exposed to false teaching. But as we look out at the, the situation at, in lar at the church at large, we see all kinds of things. We had a chap in our in fellowship in our assembly who just all of a sudden ab started to absent himself without word, uh, not coming to meetings, and we never saw him for a while, and we started to make inquiries and, and discovered that uh, he had uh, come to the conclusion that our uh, dispensational approach to the scripture was wrong, uh, and that he was uh, embracing, I take it, I didn't have an opportunity to speak with him, but I take it he was uh, uh, embracing a form of replacement or reform theology. Now, where did he get this? Well, he got this by going on the Internet. And he began looking at Internet sites, and he began reading things, and, and uh, never even thought to consult with the elders, never thought even to ask us a question uh, why we believed what we believed and what we thought about this kind of thing. See, in Paul's day, uh, these teachers would travel around. In fact, it was customary in the culture for all kinds of sort of philosophers and religious uh, people to travel around offering all kinds of ideas, and they would gather companies of people around them, and they would usually earn a living this way. They would charge people uh, to hear their talks and to be part of their group and all these kinds of things. And so Paul writes warning the believers uh, to protect them from that kind of thing. But today, people have access to all kinds of things in the, in the privacy of their own home. And so we need to be on our guard. We need to have spiritual discernment to check everything we hear against the Word of God. I've noticed in the last couple of years an alarming, uh, well, I wouldn't maybe call it a trend, but uh, I've heard of too many cases of it, uh, uh, more than I want to hear of it. In fact, I wouldn't want to hear of one case of it. But it all seems to uh, affect younger men who, and in these cases that I'm thinking of, all of these younger men were once very active in Christian service and camp work and this kind of thing, and one thing led to another, and they now find themselves to be either professing atheists or agnostics, and have completely abandoned the faith. And why did this happen? How could a young man, active in camp work, uh, working in the gospel, showing all kinds of promise to be a spiritual leader, wander off to embrace all kinds of, 
of ideas, now resenting his camp work and uh, resenting his assembly life. He, he somehow allowed these things to fester in his mind, and it got more and more of a grip on his thinking. If you have doubts about your Christian faith, about any doctrine of scripture, of anything that's taught here at the assembly, go and talk to the elders about it. There's not likely a question that you could ask that they haven't already heard. It might seem like a new question to you. You might think that you've made a great discovery. You might think that you've discovered some fatal flaw in Christian doctrine and you're concerned about it. Go and talk to them and ask every question you have. Express every doubt that you have. Get it cleared up and they'll take you to the scripture to show the foundation of the truth. Beware of dogs, Paul says. There are those false teachers that circulate that prey on the people of God. Now, Paul is not speaking here simply about uh, believers that he might disagree with on what we might call secondary matters. Uh, he's already indicated that, his attitude towards uh, believers who he disagreed with. You remember uh, in chapter 1, he speaks about uh, those who were sort of opposing Paul, uh, he says in verse 15 of chapter 1, some indeed preach Christ even of envy and strife, and some also of goodwill. The one preached Christ of contention, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my bonds, but the other of love, uh, knowing that I am set for the defense of the gospel. What then? Notwithstanding in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and I therein do rejoice and will rejoice. Now that's kind of a sad commentary, I think, that there were those who were envious of Paul, and they went out and they preached uh, out of envy and strife. It says, supposing to add affliction to my bonds. Now here they were, seeing Paul in prison, and they thought they're going to go out, and they're going to really preach, and maybe they'll become big and popular preachers, and there's Paul stuck away in prison. And they were doing it out of envy and strife. And what was Paul's attitude? Well, what does it matter? I rejoice that Christ is preached. Now, we didn't agree with those brethren, and we're not going to agree with everyone. But Paul had a generous spirit. They were genuine believers. This is something entirely different here in chapter 3. These are those who are not genuine believers, but are false teachers and so Paul uses the strongest of language. You know, Paul was not a hard man. He was not a vindictive man. Uh, he, was a, he was a man of great compassion, even though he had, a, we could say, a mind of steel. He was a strong intellect, a great man that way, but he was a very compassionate and tender man, and he would not speak harshly or cruel, cruelly towards any genuine believer. But he pulls out all the stops here. He would not allow even for a moment the damage that could be caused by false teachers. Beware of dogs, evil workers, not just evil doers, but those who work against the gospel. He saw their teaching to have a positive harm, and he calls them evil workers. They were doing evil work. And then he calls them the concision. Beware of the concision. And that's sort of a, a, a play on words. Uh, it has to do with, with cutting off or maiming. And it was referring to the time then 
when there were many, uh, largely from a Jewish background, who gravitated to the rite of circumcision and lost all sight of what that really was. Now, God gave to Abraham the right of circumcision. Romans chapter 4 tells us it was a sign, a sign of something. What was it a sign of? It seems a strange procedure. God gave that sign to Abraham. It says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. That Abraham is, is the father of all those that would believe. Paul brings it into the gospel. That the gospel is a message of faith in Christ and Christ alone as the means of our salvation. And so God gave to Abraham the rite of circumcision. And the rite of circumcision involved the cutting off of the flesh of the male reproductive organ. And it was a symbol. It was a sign showing that life could not be produced by man's efforts. That while man could reproduce physically, man by his own efforts could not reproduce spiritually. And so there was this cutting off of the flesh. It was a sign that righteousness, the declaration of righteousness, justification, as it was said to Abraham, he was declared righteous on the basis of faith. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. It really is the essence of the gospel. It is faith in Christ alone. It is not faith in Christ and something else. It's not faith in Christ and joining the right denomination, joining the right religion, engaging in baptism, following this ritual or that ritual or another ritual. It is faith in Christ and Christ alone. And this is absolutely essential, non-negotiable to the, uh, the gospel. And so in Paul's day, uh, a lot of the Judaizers, the, uh, the Jews came along and said it was the gospel and something. And so they were, they, were, they were called in kind of an insulting way, the concision, because they were contaminating the gospel by changing the rite of circumcision from the sign it was originally intended to be, the symbolism of the cutting off of the flesh, to something that gave them credit, and it robbed Christ of his saving work. And this is something that has contaminated the minds of men in false teaching ever since. Now, it might not be described in our day as circumcision, but it is something else. And great religious systems are built upon the fact that it adds something to the message of the gospel. The other day, Roy and I went over to see the, uh, the Reagan Library, which is a very interesting uh, place. If you've never had an opportunity, you should go. Uh, if you're like me, you never go and see all the local things. It's always tourists who come in from outside. I live about 10 miles from Niagara Falls, and I can't remember the last time I went down to look at Niagara Falls. But uh, you may not have been to the Reagan Library living so close to it. But they also had there uh, a temporary uh, exhibit uh, of the Vatican, and it had all kinds of things having to do uh, with the Vatican. 
But as we walked through it, it was, it was almost sickening to look at it. Of all of the history of this, uh, of people that had embraced the, the, uh, the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church that contaminates the pure message of the gospel by adding something to it. Our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, and the heart and essence of Paul's ministry was always to keep Christ and Christ alone central, that we do not add religious observances, we do not add anything else. It is Christ and Christ alone. And that's why Paul speaks in such strong language. Beware of the false way. Paul says he had no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Verse 3 says that, uh, for we are the circumcision. And what he means by that, we are the true circumcision. That is, we really do understand the significance of circumcision. That it is not a means of salvation, but it was a sign we cannot save ourselves and turns us to Christ. That's what the original purpose of circumcision was. For we are the circumcision which worship God in the Spirit and rejoice in, the, in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. The false teacher always wants to give confidence uh, to the flesh. He wants to give the flesh something. He appeals to the flesh. And we have this brand of Christianity being promoted in modern-day evangelicalism. I'm not talking about liberal Protestantism. I'm not talking about Roman Catholic doctrine. I'm not talking about cults. I'm talking about something that brands itself in the West now as evangelicalism, and it is nothing more than a catering to the flesh. It's really all it is in the name of Christianity. And we need to beware. It's confusing the message in the minds of men and women. Paul says we have no confidence in the flesh. We're not going to cater to the flesh. We're not going to coddle the flesh. We're not going to trust in the flesh. There's absolutely nothing of the flesh that receives credit or glory to the, to the least extent. He says, I'm someone, if anyone was going to have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. And Paul was right. Uh, Paul was just the right man to be the preacher of the gospel, to bring it into the world. All of his history, all of his experience, all of his, uh, his training, everything converged on Paul, and he could speak to the world with such clarity on all of the issues of the gospel that would affect human history. He says in verse 4, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh he have whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. And he cites all the things that appealed to the flesh. He says, I was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, just like the Jew was instructed to do, of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, I was the Hebrew's Hebrew. He says, touching the law, I was a Pharisee. I didn't just know the law, I studied the law, I preached the law, I interpreted the law, I applied the law, I was a vigorous defender of the law, I was a Pharisee, concerning zeal persecuting the church. Not all the Pharisees persecuted the church, but Paul sure made it his business to persecute the church. Such vehement opposition Paul had against the church of our Lord Jesus Christ as a Pharisee, he went out of his way persecuting the church, and we know his history in the book of Acts. Touching righteousness which is in the law, blameless. He observed the law to the letter of the law. And that's what the Pharisees did. They observed the law to the letter of the law. 
the moral intent of the law was another thing. But they would, they would get around the law in a, in a meticulous way of observing the procedure, and yet morally they were a complete mess. And Paul says, I observed everything that the law said I should do. He says, if anyone should be trusting in the flesh, it would be me. I took it to the nth degree. And what does he say? Verse 7, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. He uses this word gain and loss frequently in the epistle. And he says, this is a complete reversal of what I thought. Those things that I thought were gain to me, he says, I count them all loss for Christ. None of my heritage, none of the things I had in myself were of any value in connection with knowing Christ. And the false way always contaminates the pure uh, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, Yeah, doubtless I, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. I love the graphic of the old King James, don't you? That's what he thought of his own life. Paul needed to take a course in self-esteem because he didn't have much confidence in himself. He, turned, he says, I count the whole thing but nothing but, but garbage. It really means, that word really means that which is, is thrown to the dogs, those mangy dogs. It was absolutely useless for human consumption or human use. The whole thing was utter loss. Now, he turned his back on what was considered a very sophisticated life. I mean, he was a respected Pharisee. He had wealth, he had privilege, he had opportunity. I mean, he had it made in the shade, as we say. Uh, he had everything going for him as far as this world is concerned. He would have been a highly respected man among the Jews. He says, the whole thing I counted but loss that I may win Christ. I think that's a challenge for us as well. You say, well, I'm not a, I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not a, I, I'm not a highly respected Pharisee. No, but there are other things in this life that we count pretty, pretty highly. We, we value pretty highly. And if we're not careful, these things, uh, they might start out having a legitimate claim in our lives, but in ways we hardly notice or realize they can begin to take over in our lives. And they, they leave their legitimate place in our lives and start to consume our lives. Our business uh, activities, our careers, our work, uh, our other things, our, our hobbies, uh, uh, our interest in sports, uh, uh, all these kinds of things. Yes, they may have a legitimate role to a certain extent, but when they start to take over our lives and hinder our service for Christ, then they become a loss. And we need to sometimes say with Paul, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. If there's anything that is interfering in my Christian life that is preventing me from knowing the Lord more and more and walking in obedience to Him, I need to take steps to get rid of that thing so it doesn't take over my life and the life of my family and my children and my assembly. 
How foolish it would be for us to pursue mere worldly pursuits when we have the opportunity, as Paul says, that I might be, uh, verse 9, be found in him not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. This was the real Christian life, not the false Christian life that was offered by the false teachers, but the reality was a living, intimate relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ where I would know him more and more and more and I would go deeper and deeper and deeper and stronger and stronger and stronger and it would be a lifelong pursuit until I step into glory. This is one of, the, one of the great blessings of the Christian life, that we never retire from the Christian life. Now, we might retire from certain aspects of service, but the dynamic of growing, we don't reach a point in our Christian life where we say, I've pretty well learned it all, I pretty well know the Bible, I know all there is to know as a Christian, and I'll just wait till the Lord takes me home. No, we apprehend, we pursue, and we are being pursued through our entire life. This brings a dynamic, a purpose, an interest, a zeal in our life that we never get to the end, we never become useless, we never stop growing, we never stop learning. We are pursuing knowing the Christ of God. How could we ever get to the end of that? That will be a pursuit on through into eternity. We will never exhaust it. This is the wonderful purpose to which we have been called into, to know God, to have fellowship with God, and to be one day made like him. Beware of the false way and believe in the true way. Time forbids us to go into the detail of some of the things Paul says later on. You can read the uh, chapter again for yourself. But the warning still stands to be on our guard. Stay close to one another. Stay close to the word of God. Stay close to the teaching of the word of God. Don't countenance false ideas that are so uh, prevalent around us and often so subtle. We hardly even notice how false they really are. There are some uh, teachers around, you can listen to them, you think, well, you know, that's not a bad message. You know, that, that, that's pretty good. But buried in there is something that's just not right. It's just not in accordance with Scripture. It's a contamination of Scripture. The Lord said that the false uh, prophets would come in, that outwardly they would be in sheep's clothing but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. They're not so nice on the inside. Their intentions are to destroy. Stay close to God's people. Stay close to God's word and will be kept from the false way. Beware of the false way and follow the true way. Shall we pray? Father, again, we're grateful for the word of God. We're thankful for its availability to us and the privilege we have of meeting together to consider it for the help that we are to one another in understanding it. And we pray that it might sink deeply into our hearts and into our minds, and that it might manifest itself in our lives, that it might be worked out in our lives in many practical ways. We bless thee for the message of the gospel, the only hope for the world. We bless thee for what our Lord Jesus Christ has done at Calvary's cross, what he continues to do now in his ministry of intercession, 
and what he will yet do one day when he comes to take us to be with himself. We ask thy blessing upon us now as we part in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ and to his honor and glory.